Jennifer Demetor, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Uh, you are an artist and an architect. Yes. Correct. Right. Okay. Here's the thing. I've never met an architect before. You're the first architect I ever get to speak to. So this is kind of a real joy at my end. Uh, first of all, let's start with uh, how long have you been, been doing architecture and how long have you been an installation or, or I guess, do you call yourself an installation artist? Yes. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to describe my work is installation. It's kind of sculptural. It's very architectural. Um, sometimes okay. people will happen upon my artist's website and think it's my architecture website. So um, yeah, I never really know what to describe myself, but installation seems the closest. Okay. So how long have you, have you been doing both? Uh, I, it's kind of this weird story where I was into one, then the other, then back. So I got my fine arts degree uh, right out of uh, high school. I went into to that. Um, so I did a lot of art, obviously, during then, but my intention was always to be an architect. So I don't think I ever really thought of myself as an artist. Um, and then, yeah, then I moved across country to Halifax, did my master's in architecture and practice as an architect. So, um, and the art just kind of kept creeping back. Um, actually, even during my architecture uh, master's, I did a class in installation uh, art. So it, it just kept creeping back and creeping back and creeping back. Uh, we, I did this project with my ex-husband where we created this uh, very biomimetic pavilion. <laughs> I listened to your episode on bio, uh, biometric yes. design, so, <laughs> which I find super fascinating. So uh, it, the shapes and stuff were reminiscent of the wheat fields that it was in. Uh, and it's a, yeah, it, it definitely had a very artistic nature to it. And that project led me or led the uh, curator of the Confederation Center of the Arts uh, to contact us to talk about doing a collaboration with another artist, a maritime artist. So it's it just kind of kept creeping back in. And I finally was just accepted that I also was an artist as well as an architect and yeah, started to really explore explore my art, especially in relation to our surroundings and architecture. Um, and then it eventually kind of started informing my architecture as well. So my art's so much about connecting to our surroundings. Um, and I've always, it's, I love how people interact with it. Like they're always so excited, especially kids. Like they just, I feel like I, I, I should have been born in the sixties and made like crazy playgrounds because kids just love it. They'll run at it. Um, <laughs> And I, I've, I, yeah, the people really connect with it, which I've, I find fascinating and really interesting. And I think I really realized that I think people want more interesting spaces as well. They want to have that connection. They want to have an experience uh, in their spaces and homes. So it kind of, yeah, it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth. I'm an architect. I'm an artist. I overlap. It's this weird and confusing world. <laughs> Do you have like a pat more passion for like one over the other or or is it pretty equal? It is it's weirdly equal. And again, it like spikes between one or the other. Um I mean, it's hard for me not to get excited about a building project. Like I mean, I'm just always so excited to build someone's home. I'm some sometimes more than they are. Um but yeah, I really I really enjoy the art as well. Um I think just connecting to people through built structures um is is really kind of my passion so they both fulfill that uh just in kind of different ways 
Yeah, because with the art, you're creating whatever you want. You're not you're not yes. dependent. I mean, unless you're doing a commission, of course, right? We have to leave the commission out of this. But let's say, do you sometimes decide as an artist, I'm inspired by this idea, I want to create this, and you build it? Do you sometimes do that? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, well, I, I see my art often as a, an exploration. So I start with an idea or a material, and I just play with it and see what I come up with. I think that, yeah, that's the most interesting part is just taking like a concrete series. So I started making these concrete blocks um, and yeah, just was thinking, what can we do with this? This is a material that's around us all the time. Um, and how can we start playing with this as a artistic material? So making them different weights, uh, creating different patterns. How do we make it so that the concrete blocks surround us, but in a very light way. And so like trying to like play with this, our relationship to the materials and how it creates space in sort of a different way than we're used to. So yeah, my art, my art is very much an exploration for me. Uh, so do you have like a secret underground lab that you work in at home or like how does it work? Where, where, where do you do all these experiments? Uh, my garage, this is, I don't think it's ever had the car in it ever. <laughs> <laughs> and also my basement if it's too cold there's there's definitely been concrete re work going on in my basement for sure <laughs> okay I had to ask because I know as an artist myself uh especially like when I lived in Montreal my entire living room was just a, a mess of creation yes oh man yeah it can get really messy I think people don't understand when artists explore they they go all out absolutely and there's a lot of of, of yeah, there's a lot to, to clean after yourself afterwards, I'm sure. Yeah, there definitely is. No, it's true. Finding space to create like larger pieces and even to explore, it can definitely be tough. I've, uh, uh, we, we had a friend of ours just like lend me their garage because we were just like living in this tiny apartment downtown in Kingston. And like, although I did actually make some concrete in that apartment, that is a true story. But, but yes, it's better when it's a larger area. You can actually spread out. Let's touch on concrete for a second here, mm -hmm. because I actually, I interviewed a moss specialist in Australia, and what cool. she was doing is she was studying, I think it was the adherence of moss on concrete, so she created a huge study, you know, based on different sizes of concrete, different recipes of concrete. Sweet. It's really, it really makes me think of what you just talked about. So what can, what do we know and, and I have to say, this is also a very selfish question at my end, because I discovered a whole bunch of tardigrades, little water bears that live yeah. in the concrete in my, uh, on my balcony. So when I move to the East Coast sometime, I don't know when this year, um, I want to take them with me. So I'm like, I need to construct them a concrete home. So my question to you is, what have you learned about, so we, let's, let's start with the weight of concrete. Uh, tell me, yeah, so just let, okay. let, let's start with that. Well, you can definitely adjust the weight of concrete. Concrete is a super interesting material. Uh, it can be really fluid. It can, you can actually like build with it almost like clay. Uh, it's, there's so many different additives that you can add to concrete that adjust its properties. Uh, so one thing that you can do for weight is you can actually add, um, like insulation, like grade up some insulation and add that to your mixture. Uh, and it, yeah, you, there, it's, 
that's quite a lot. I've been experimenting with how much I can add without uh, sacrificing the like the structural integrity of the material. Uh, I mean, I'm not building houses with this. This is for my art. <laughs> but this is done in uh, building practices as well um, under you know engineers that actually will have a specific amount. So if you're looking to build something concrete and lightweight, yeah, just uh, grade up some some insulate. Uh, I would go with the uh, the white insulation. Um, there's also different fibers that you can add to it. Uh, the concrete that I like to work on is a glass fiber reinforced concrete. And they have these small, like inch long glass fibers and they add or they decrease the weight a lot with, and they also make it a lot more structural. So you can have very thin pieces of concrete that are lighter and actually can take a lot of weight and even a bit of bend because of the fibers. So can that you helps. um once you let's say you make something out of concrete can you then i, I mean i know nothing yeah. so i'm asking really stupid questions here but can you sand it after can you actually shape concrete i have so many questions yeah no worries um yes it depends on what like like your normal handheld sender you can probably take off uh like some bits that were poking out. Uh, you can get into like an actual grinder um, and then you can really shape it. Uh, a lot of, so the, I went in, so part of my, yeah, so part, I got a, a grant a while ago to study concrete and I went down to uh, North Carolina to Raleigh and uh, did some, did a workshop under a concrete countertop uh, instructor, uh, and they do a lot of shaping with grinders, uh, which you can get some really great and interesting profiles. You can definitely, you can definitely bore into it in interesting ways. Um, Buddy Rhodes is an interesting sort of craftsman, uh, person that works a lot with concrete and a lot in like a very sculptural way as well. It's often easier to build up layers in concrete than it is to grind back, but you, you can, there is that, that versatility in it. So you can get, so you got a grant to study concrete. Was that uh, as an artist? Is that what you mean? Yes, totally. Yeah, I mean, I was, there's such an interesting grants out there for artists. And uh, so my work a lot initially had dealt with wood. Um, it was just something I'd worked in a lot. I thought playing with two by fours is super interesting. What cool things can we make for two by fours? Uh, but the one thing about wood outside is of course it deteriorates a lot faster than say concrete. So uh, my grant was to look at how to create more permanent structures outside and learn new materials, which yeah. That's so cool. That's that's really, I'm so happy that grants like that exist because- oh my God, yeah. You know, in, especially as artists, there's not a lot of support. I mean, there, there, there are grants, like you said, but there's not a lot of support in terms of monetization. I mean, tell me about that for a second here. As an installation artist, let's say, uh, outside of your architecture work, is it is it hard to find people to buy stuff? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't sell my art um, like commercially. It's definitely I get commissioned to do different public art projects. Um, people will come to me with a space that they want something in. Uh, often it's a city. I think cities are definitely, uh, I have a project right now with the city of Kingston to do an installation in an empty storefront, uh, which I think it'll be a cool project. But it's it's festivals, uh, public art projects, and commissions from cities. Uh, you don't really sell work as an, an installation artist. Um, 
Okay. Um, out of curiosity, because I did, of course, take a look at your website, your your personal website, your artist website, and your architecture one. But the the thing I fell in love with the most are the pods. Awesome. Um, you know, those like you mentioned, you used to work with wood, and I'm like, can somebody just buy one of those pods for their backyard? Um. Yeah. I mean, it's I. <laughs> The amount of work that goes into one of those pods definitely makes it somewhat cost prohibitive to someone. Oh, it would probably be a rich it. person. It would <laughs> yeah. probably be a rich person. But if if somebody did could afford to hire you, would Absolutely. you do a pod for for their you know mansion and their Absolutely. their backyard essentially? <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, I looked into it because I was thinking about uh, using the the one with the grass benches. Um, uh, to in another context, actually, uh, the, the the one the one on my website it was for a festival. It was only up for a day, and now it belongs to another festival in Moncton. But uh, so it's not up for very long. So I wanted to create a version that could be outside um, in as like a public work um, longer term. And I think it was actually only like seven or eight thousand dollars to get it actually constructed out of laminated lumber, which I mean not everyone can afford, but yes, you could. You can get the design. Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised what people pay for these days, right? So that's the yeah. other thing. I mean, people are probably buying like $20,000 sandboxes for their kids. So, <laughs> you know. I would build a cool $20,000 sandbox. That would be yes. fun. <laughs> yes, I'm all, I'm all for that if anybody wants to hire Jennifer to build a, a very fancy <laughs> sandbox. Um, can we talk about wood now? Uh, because I, I am very curious about those pods. Uh, first of all, how do you come up with the design, especially for something that's made out of wood? Um, for pods, it was a lot about experimenting with bending wood. And I thought that was interesting. I had done some bending of wood in my, uh, during my architecture degree, during my master's. Uh, the nice thing about Dalhousie, the school that I went to, is they really encourage uh, building projects. So there's a month in the summer where we go and, and make things and build things. And one of my teachers, uh, he does bent wood trusses. And that's and then so we I taken some of those techniques to build the pavilion, the one that's uh, reminiscent of the, the wheat fields, the grains. And so, yeah, I just wanted to start exploring that further. Um, so the shape itself. Um, and what I got from that or how I got the shapes was exploring the different ways to bend wood, um, exploring steaming, exploring how the material would bend without steaming and really just breaking a lot of wood in the process. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's such an exploration for me. Like I, I have this idea, this end goal, like the end goal for pods was to connect to nature, to connect to our surroundings. Um, and then the rest, often how it shapes and forms is so much because of the exploration with the material. Yeah, my father actually makes traditional bows for archery. So I know what goes into the process of making one bent piece of wood. I can't imagine making many. Um, What kind of wood did you work with for those projects? Uh, Often, a lot of times for my art projects, I like to use off-the-shelf Home Depot. I like people to be able to go there and be like, I could do that. Because I want them to do that. I want them to look at it and be like, yes, yes, you could go to Home Depot and you could build this. <laughs> have you done any, um, out of curiosity, have you done any YouTube videos on on like DIY projects and stuff? No, I haven't. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> it would be cool. That would be cool, actually. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. 
how to build um, a weird structure in your backyard. <laughs> oh, 100% or like BA kind of like look at what you can do with Home Depot, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Now, so you built these pods, but how did you come up with the like, because I know, yes, okay, you studied how to bend wood, but how do you come up with an actual design, whether it's for pods or anything else? But what actually, how does that start? Uh, for me, it's like this background thing that's going on. You're like thinking about, you're thinking about your parameters, what you want to achieve with this. You're thinking of the materials you want to use. Um, and then it sort of like percolates in the back of my mind for like months. I'll be like, hmm. and then all of a sudden you'll be like, I don't know, having a shower or like reading a book outside or something. And you'll be like, oh my gosh, I know how this will all come together. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Yeah. So then I don't then, know. Did you sketch it out after or? Uh, sometimes I'm actually horrible at sketching. I'm like, like you think architect and you think someone who's really great at sketching, that's yeah. definitely not me. No, no. Uh, I actually often, uh, 3d model it. Uh, I find it like helps me, helps me figure out how, how I could possibly build something. Um, and that way, at least I have a starting point. Uh, I use SketchUp a lot, which is an arc, like it's something I used as an architect. Um, but yeah, it helps me figure out sort of then how I think this will go together. And then my actual actual exploration, I mean, it always changes. The material is never going to behave exactly how you want it. Like things are going to snap and yeah, stuff is not, it's never exactly how you want it. So it's so much part of the process though. As much as you like want to shoot yourself partway through. <laughs> I can see now why you say that the two being an artist and being an architect for you at least are very intertwined because this is exactly the same process as any artist whether you're a composer or a sculptor you know a sculptor yeah. or whatever this sounds very very similar no absolutely i think so yeah i think that's definitely a huge overlap is how um how my ideas come definitely it's about yeah having the goals having the parameters and then having it all percolate i definitely don't like to let for my architecture i don't like to rush client processes i'd rather take it as slow as possible so that I can have these like great moments of inspiration where I'm like, I know exactly what you would like in your kitchen. <laughs> it's going to sound weird, but you will love this. <laughs> what about, yes. Jennifer, what about working with steel? Have you worked with steel? Uh, not, not extensively. I worked a bit with steel when I did my bachelor of fine arts uh, with welding. Um, not very, like I, it was more like here, this is how you use the welder, and <laughs> this is a spot welder, and this is that, and try not to burn yourself, and <laughs> go at it for three months. Uh, I definitely, I definitely think I will eventually get to steel. Uh, um, in my architecture, it's out, it's just your typical I beams and columns and stuff. But I think there is, there's steel is super interesting material. I love the idea of welding. Uh, I would like to just, I think actually take some welding courses before I get back into it. I think I still have scars from that. <laughs> because just to be clear, whether it's for your art or your architecture, you're designing, but you're also doing all the work, correct? Uh, for my art, I build everything myself. Um, but for my architecture, yeah, you have that sort of disconnect. So I do the design and I do drawings and then someone else builds it. So it's a definitely an inter it's a different process. Uh, it's good though because that person will have way better skills than me at constructing something. <laughs> well, um, you could potentially work in steel for the architecture part. 
for the arch uh for the architecture part you'd have you have to have certain uh welding certificates so if i did get that i would definitely be able to but it would <laughs> i was just thinking because somebody else is doing the work so you could hire a welder oh, yeah absolutely i could hire a welder to definitely for sure okay yeah, okay. and I'm definitely interested in collaborations like that with different tradespeople and stuff. That's why I think it finds that architecture is is super interesting and fulfilling because there is that collaboration. Like you will get to work with the tiler, you'll get to work with all these different tradespeople that have their their own skills and knowledge. And you have this this idea of how you you want it to be, but then as you get that feedback and back and forth, you have this collaboration that goes on, and then it it gets elevated to different levels. So I, I definitely. I think that would be super fascinating to do uh, a project with the welder. This is actually uh, a bricklayer nearby that approached me about doing a project that I have in the back of my mind. I would be amazing to do some sort of crazy brick uh, structure. So, um, Ooh, that, yeah. that sounds really, you know, I went to Portugal in 2015 mm -hmm. for about two months and I noticed the bricks there are very, I don't know if you've ever been to Portugal, but the bricks have holes that are, that are, different than ours you know how ours kind of go like vertical theirs are yep. horizontal for i guess for air circulation or, or, or whatever but i found that really so even in bricks much like concrete there must be a million options absolutely uh that's super interesting too like materials change so much from region to region and how you use them i mean our climate in canada is totally different than say australia um yeah, and it, and definitely I was so I did one of my work terms in Australia and I always found it interesting is that they frame their houses with like two by threes. Whereas here we're like two by sixes and like all this insulation and it's just it's not like structurally necessary. So there so there's so many differences in how things are constructed. Uh it which is I think super fascinating. I think it gives um each region and sort of gets these different flavors of architecture that I think is super important to the identity of the place. Um, but yeah, definitely how something's constructed in the materials that it changes so much. Huh. So as an architect, the first thing that we think about for non-architects is somebody who plans, designs houses. Usually it's like a person who designs a house. Um, you are not a house architect. You're a structural architect, right? No, no, uh, no. No, no, okay. I'm like, no, no, uh, I, yeah, no, uh, actually, I like to leave structure, anything that's going to, to hold, to, to leave people's lives in, uh, <laughs> in balance, definitely go with structural engineer. That is an important person. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but yes, no, uh, my background actually is all over for architecture. Uh, I did my internship after I did my master's in Prince Edward Island and because, there's only, I think there's 17 of us, including interns, uh, architects on the island. You basically like do the gamut from, you know, schools, care homes, uh, Starbucks, shoppers, drug marts, offices, like everything, airports, um, and tons of houses. I actually, houses are, are my favorite part of architecture. Um, you don't need an architect for a house uh, anywhere across Canada, unless it's over a certain size. But I think it's the most personal part of being an architect. Like it's, it's so much more fulfilling for me to build something uh, yeah, that, that an individual person connects to. Um, doing a apartment building or doing a Starbucks can be, I don't know, kind of soul sucking sometimes. <laughs> 
this is why I ask is because I have I I had the the idea that an architect designed the house, but also kind of designed you know that made sure that the walls could support the roof, blah blah blah. So I guess that is an, an engineer that does that. Yes. Uh, okay. So how it works? Yeah. So uh, the Wikipedia definition for architect is someone who plans, designs, and oversees construction. Um, so our our role is definitely more in the planning and designing portions of it. Uh, and we also act as the prime consultant. And that means that, so we basically function as the like GP, the general practitioner of a project. And we know a little about a lot of things. Uh, and that's so that we can coordinate with the electrical engineer, the structural engineer, the mechanical engineer, the acoustical engineer, the traffic engineer, <laughs> the planner. Um, so they're the experts and I know enough about their different professions to make sure that every, everyone's work can overlap and, and, and function together in the most efficient way possible. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of logistics um, in terms of like your house and like how it stands up. That's actually probably the building code that's going to regulate that. Um, there's a national building code across Canada and then there's local ones. So Ontario has its own building code and that will specifically tell you like how big the two by fours in your wall need to be, what's the spacing of them what the sheathing is going to be on the outside. So it's this very dense manual slash full of legal jargon. And it makes you want to like bang your head against the wall. But <laughs> right, that's the least artistic part of the business. Oh, I would yes. Say. Yes. It's definitely okay. the least artistic part. So if, so then a client could potentially come to you and say, listen, I want the most eccentric house on the block. Okay. I want like, I don't know. I want it in the shape of the Batmobile. I want a house in the shape of the Batmobile. Okay. Let's say a client comes to you and says, I have a ton of money, unlimited budget. I want to do this. Could you, so would you be the one who would design it and then go to all the regulators and all that jazz? Yes, that would definitely be. So I would try to figure out who we would talk to about <laughs> being allowed to build something like that. I don't know. I'm not sure what sort of zoning regulations that would, uh, that would nullify, but uh, yeah. And then, uh, then I would start looking at, okay, so how are we going to get cladding that looks like the Batmobile? Let's reach out to different suppliers. Let's see, reach out to a structural engineer and see the best way to create structure that can support something like that. Um, so that, <laughs> and, 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 and I actually can... like talk to them and sit down and be like, okay, so why, why do you want the Batmobile? <laughs> Maybe there's a better solution. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's funny because honestly, if 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 I had my way and, and unlimited budget, I would get a house that would be the most eccentric house on the block. So naturally, somebody might approach you with that idea, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've had some strange. I've had gargoyles proposed on a project before. Um, <laughs> that's probably the most eccentric exterior i don't know though at the same time i like i mean batmanville is pretty out there but in terms of what's considered uh eccentric i don't know i think my tolerance is fairly uh <laughs> fairly high <laughs> well and, and so like things like one of the things i've always wondered is why we always have square rooms you know like i've always wondered why don't we have more rounded corners is there a reason you think uh it's efficiency <laughs> Ah. I say efficiency and laziness. Because okay. <laughs> I agree. I don't know. I mean, I do know. I know it's, it's yeah, it's more efficient to lay your house that way. I mean, everything, 
everything's more efficient in a square. You have, you're limiting the amount of exterior space or exterior walls. So you have less heat loss, but it's boring. It's, it's soul sucking. You, uh, yes, it's the most efficient way to build your home, but what you really need to look at is creating good spaces. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I don't, I, yes, we respond well to uh, atypical or irregular shape spaces. Um, one thing I think is crazy nowadays is the the different ceiling heights. We so often houses have the same ceiling height throughout the whole building. And that's, that's, it, it, uh, there's different, there's a lot of studies that look at how that affects you mentally, um, that you're actually more creative in spaces with higher ceilings that, uh, yeah, but basically you can sort of adjust the experience of your house so much just with ceiling height. Um, but I think we just get stuck in this idea of squares, lots of squares. Yeah, lots of squares. Um, everything seems very beige, gray, kind of. I mean, I don't know. Do you also consider color or is that something a, a different designer does? Uh, so I mean, interior design stuff somewhat falls uh, under what I do. Um, but as an architect, I don't spec a lot of color. Uh, <laughs> there's like this this thing that architects only spec whites, which is there's a lot of whites to spec. <laughs> I don't know if you've been to the, to the hardware store. There's, you know, hundreds of whites. But uh, it's actually because uh, something I find more interesting and that we respond to better is, uh, like, texture. So adding things like wood, adding things like concrete, adding adding more natural elements um, and things that are more tactile, I think, uh, is a better way and a better focus within a room. So often color can sort of uh, overshadow that. Um, so I think that's why architects often don't are known for specking white rooms. <laughs> oh, makes sense, of course. You uh, recently wrote a blog article for Meaningful Design, which I really enjoyed. And I think it's something that we need to talk about a lot more. Uh, I am learning to add more meaning to my own space. But as a renter right now, it's, it's hard to add meaning to a rented space. I think... Absolutely. You know, yeah, and so what we've agreed, my partner and I, when we get a house, is that we each get a floor. Nice. Right? Uh, so how, what are some things that people can do to add more meaningful design to their living space? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that the meeting can happen so many ways in a room. One thing I like to think about is actually the activities that you want to do. I think that having different experiences in a room uh, actually adds a lot of meaning. So whether that's family gatherings, whether that's games night, it's really thinking about what activities you want a room to facilitate uh, and making sure that happens easily. You don't want to bury all your games on the other side of the house. You don't want to be awkward to have a family gathering. So um, I definitely think looking at looking at the function of a room in terms of the activities that you want to have there, uh, as well as the experiences that you want to have. So, um, yeah, so I, 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 we did our bathroom, uh, recently and we based it in our honeymoon. Uh, we thought it would be an interesting way to sort of bring back togetherness. Um, and we wanted to sort of experience very subtly sort of the different things from Spain and from France that we, that defined that trip for us. So, uh, we the experience we wanted to have was one of togetherness we really wanted to look at materials that reminded us of those spaces so it ended up being just layering these different um yeah the, i mean meaning is so personal but i think it's, it's really just thinking about things that are meaningful to you activities that are meaningful to you and experiences that are meaningful to you um and then 
and using that as a basis for your design. I think we just think of, I need a dining room and it'd be cool if I had this cool light, but I think it can be so much more. You can have uh, a dining room table that has secret compartments that, you know, unfold and there's a puzzle table as well, or a games table. Uh, I think it's just taking that extra second to, to program your space for more. Um, and I think it's also just expecting more from our spaces as well. I think we just, I don't know, we, we, we don't, I think, put it, we don't deliberately and thoughtfully demand better spaces, <laughs> which I think we should. Uh, I recently had some clients that are from South Africa and they came here and they were horrified at our houses. <laughs> and right here, like, you mean, you mean in Kingston? Uh, no, they actually landed in uh, Saskatchewan, but, uh. but yeah, the, uh, there's, yeah, they, I mean, they were horrified by the like 60s suburb and how we live in these cookie cutter houses uh, with no personality that don't, you know, reflect the people that live there that don't connect to outside. Um, so yeah, to add meaning to your space, I wish I'd read my blog over. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, but I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of talk about that because we were talking about eccentric houses, right? I mean, I'm the type of person that would prefer to to have a house that matches my personality, much yeah. like on the East Coast, you see all these beautiful, colorful, old houses with like designed wood on the porch. You know, there's not a lot of that in outside of that region. Let's say. Yeah, um, definitely. I love the, the East Coast. There's this, I don't actually know how true this is, but the the rumor for like the, the colors on the buildings is that that was whatever paint was cheapest at the like, <laughs> throwbacks. they were like, all wow. right, this is crazy purple. We're going to go crazy purple this time. <laughs> um, oh boy. Yeah, that, that would not be meaningful at all. <laughs> Uh, but I think I think there was traditionally a lot more thought often put in to our homes, uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, the amount of workmanship and stuff. Uh, I've been I'm recently done a heritage home and on the Heritage Kingston uh, committee here, and it's super interesting to the amount of craftsmanship and the amount of thought that goes into all these intricate details, and they help create this experience, which. I, I don't think we we often do. And even with the heritage, like I find people are kind of reluctant. They're like, oh, I have to rebuild this, <laughs> this porch. And I'm like, yeah, it's an amazing porch. <laughs> You're going to want to sit on there in your rocker, you know, show things at the neighbor kids. Like, <laughs> Exactly. Um, it was funny because I recently... I, I come up with stupid questions at 2 a.m. And then like, my partner goes, what are you thinking about? But one, at one, I remember a few weeks ago thinking, why don't we live in castles anymore? You know, and, and then finding out that actually that kind of structure is not good for living in. Mm -hmm. right? yeah, it's, I mean, I mean it's, castles are really dark. Well, really dark and, and cold, cold, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, building materials have changed so much for sure over the years. Uh, also, the amount of time to build a castle. Like if right. you, yeah, I mean, I'm, right now I'm thinking this uh, Sagrada Familia or Familia the, in Spain when you were in, did you go into Spain at all? Not no, really, no. I, I, it's a church and it's been being built for, um, I don't, I think it's almost a hundred years now. Um, so it took a long time to build the castles for sure um yeah i mean i've i've seen people try to build castles now out of concrete and stuff and it definitely doesn't have the same this i don't i feel 
what a castle was, was so much a product of its time. You know, it's defensive. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's defensive. It's this, like, this epitome of power, of, of permanence and stuff. So now our houses, I mean, our houses have changed to reflect that, really. Um, right. Um, can we switch over to bio design or like nature design? Because I'm thinking castles and naturally I'm thinking climbing mm-hmm. vines, which leads me to my next thought, which is, uh, well, first of all, let's talk about things like uh, how, first of all, how plants um, influence design. So like climbing vines or whatever, I don't know, moss, you know, can you well, yeah, I'll prefer this as the person that kills unkillable plants. In the background here, there's like a, a money tree. You know, there are like three that like intertwine. Two are dead. They died years ago. <laughs> there's only one alive. Uh, but I think actually plants are an important part and an interesting part uh, and should be part of design for sure. Uh, even that, like we need more nature in inside our house. I think we don't pay enough to the indoor-outdoor transitions. In terms of structure, I don't think they necessarily, and I mean, just because all of our houses at this point now and a lot of our spaces, they're so square box and based on post and beam construction versus something like leaves and stuff like that that have these, these, these convex and concave structures that give it strength and stuff. So I think there's a lot more design that references that and uses that, uh, which is super interesting. I love vines that grow up a building and, and I like the idea of incorporating uh, vegetation in a home. There's a lot of, I was just doing a, a class on designing for winter and one part of it is about bringing greenery inside your home. So looking at things like a living wall uh, and actually gardens, they have like furniture that are gardens now that you just, you know, you have this nice cabinet and like inside it, you're growing all your herbs, your kale, your lettuce, which is super interesting. Uh, The one thing that uh, I love old structures with the vines growing up and over it, but it's so much compromising (laughs) the exterior of the building. It's like so gorgeous and lovely, but you're like every time that vine is shooting a shoot inside and like locking on, they're like puncturing through different things. And yeah, it's, it's, I have mixed so that is a bad it. idea then, eh? There's ways that you can do it that's less uh, invasive. So uh, now often you'll see wires on the exterior of a building. So the vines will climb up the wires instead of the cladding itself. So you don't have that puncturing, but you still get a similar look. Or you'll have like a, a lattice that's projected out uh, on a, a couple inches from the facade of the building, just so you don't get that, uh, you don't compromise your, your building envelope. Okay. So how does nature then influence your work? Do you sometimes look at a tree and get an idea from from a tree or like, you know, maybe you, you see a documentary on beetles and you learn something new about beetles that you can then apply to your work? Uh, my work is not necessarily, my work is often about connecting with nature, not necessarily being in, I mean, it is, I think it's like recognizing the fact that having nature in our lives is important and it shouldn't, we shouldn't live in these hermit houses that barely connect to outside. Uh, so my work, I think, I mean, I love the idea of building structures that are, um, or spaces that come from that, from, that are inspired. Uh, I think 
what I found super interesting about the podcast that you had on biomimicry is that it was it was put with an engineering department. And I think one of the struggles as an architect often can be getting an engineer that will sign off on something <laughs> like that. You're like, I want to build this <laughs> yeah, overlapping leaf canopy house. And then you're like, all right, so now I need an engineer <laughs> to, to do all the calculations and sign off that so that will not fall down on someone's head. Um. <laughs> of course, right? Uh, okay, so you're not necessarily inspired by design, but you do try to make it work with nature. What about environmentalism? Uh, do you sometimes get clients that are like, I want environmental, environmentally friendly pro products only or environmentally friendly design, like no big windows that might kill birds kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I think... Um... I think that's, that's definitely becoming more and more of a trend. Uh, when I did my my Bachelor of Environmental Design Studies, which sounds like it's in environmental, but it's actually just a Bachelor of Architecture, uh, and my Master's of Architecture, they we had a huge focus on uh, alternative uh, energy sources, on alternative materials. Uh, I went When I went to Australia for my work term, I built rammed earth houses. Um, so I find that's a very interesting and you're definitely getting a lot more people that are interested in like, say, straw belt houses. Um, I think it's, I think people are becoming more and more aware that that is the trend. I don't know. I think it's, it's, I, it's so ingrained in sort of what I do. I'm often, that's my go-to because, uh, I was trained that way. I was trained that you should make sure that you're, that you're, uh, house has the best insulation possible. I think that like there's definitely a a give and take with that though. Like you don't want to again live in this super insulated box that's very efficiently heated. Uh, you want to have windows. <laughs> <laughs> you want yep. to still connect outside. I think there's this aspect of yeah environmental design or sustainable design uh, that also should be about connecting to outdoors uh, as well. So what can somebody do if like, for example, when I grew up, my parents had a huge picture window and I swear to God, like every month there was a, a bird that would smash into it. Uh, what are some things that people can do from an architectural standpoint or whatever to prevent that? Do you know? Uh, not offhand, actually. I, yeah, you'd have to look into it. I mean, I'm thinking that you would, having two windows where you could see through would affect that. Um, I don't know. That would be something yeah. that I would ask around for. It's such a it's such a, a, a big problem. So I guess that's not something that would be taken into account. Then when you're doing a design, it's not really part of the the architect's purview. Let's say. Uh, it, I mean, if it was an issue for the location, it definitely would be uh, for sure. If you had a lot of birds in your area, uh, I definitely think that you would would look in that. Um, I know adding things like curtains. We do that for like added insulation value for like a large, a huge window. Um, I think that would help with that. But again, you don't want to have your window closed uh, all the time. Uh, but no, if you definitely do, I think that, like each you get different locations that will have these these different uh, design considerations. Like if there was a lot of birds uh, in Halifax, they had a huge issue with pigeons. Uh, sometimes you'll have a bug issue, which is not really something I'd ever dealt with before coming to Ontario. Um, so yeah, I think each, each climates have these, these issues that you need to deal with that it's, I think really important as an architect to understand the location that you're at and definitely talk to the people, uh, that are living at there. So 
I guess it's often good for someone to live in a house before I renovate it. So I know what sort of issues are there. <laughs> often you can't guess. You're just like, all right, well, you know, ask the building department around there if there's anything. But I know I, have, I haven't dealt with someone who had a, a big issue with birds before. Okay. Uh, you mentioned playgrounds earlier. Mm. What are some kind of dream playgrounds that you'd love to build? Ooh. <laughs> or, or if that question is too too um, complex, then what would you change about our current play playgrounds? Yeah, I mean, I think I was actually just listening to this article on uh, this idea of an adventure playground. On uh, how our playgrounds now are like an administrator's dream they're like so safe but they're a child's nightmare uh because they're so safe <laughs> so you have kids that are just you know trying to push themselves in these and make them as dangerous as possible when uh and there's this idea of the adventure playground which is i mean it's it's a little extreme but it's like giving kids two by fours and nails and hammers <laughs> and like an empty site and being like go for it uh which i think is interesting as well uh so i do think that there, yeah, I mean, I think playgrounds are a bit boring now. Often, uh, I I miss the merry-go-round. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't miss getting all dizzy, but yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that I think I, I have this great book on playgrounds uh, through yeah the 50s, 60s, 70s of different architects and different uh, landscape architects designed, and they're so interesting. And in, you know, the materials, the local materials. There's all these different environments that kids can play in that are that are that, like they're so different from place to place, which I think is is important. I think it's a variety of experiences is good for us. Um, so yes, I, I do find it sad that architects don't design playgrounds anymore. <laughs> and well, all kids I mean... think my art is playgrounds, pretty much. <laughs> That, that's where the advantage comes in, right? I mean, there's um, there's a, a program in the UK called the Architects of Air. And mm. what they do is they, they brought this to, uh, to Ottawa, but essentially it's an artist who designed a gigantic inflatable building that has these kinds of windows that let light in and they set it up for festivals and things like that. It's, it's gigantic. But um, that's one way of bringing play in a, mm -hmm. an installation, I suppose. So do you enjoy um, designing kind of playful installations? Is that something that you really, really enjoy doing? Yeah, I think that uh, absolutely. I I see I see my work is not complete until someone's in it, experiencing it and playing with it. Um, I want to know what they're going to do. I've built this, this structure for them to connect with, you know, their surroundings, their building materials, usually some sort of natural environment, but I really want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, yeah, so it's always super fascinating. Uh, definitely. Uh, I had a project, the one I did at the Confederation Center in PEI, I was taking it down and the mom was, uh, was had come, happened upon us taking it down. And she's like, oh, no, like my kid plays here every day. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that's so flattering and amazing. But I'm really sad that we're taking this down. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I can I can only imagine because those um you're probably are you talking about the pods? Is that what you're? No, it was the oh. remote when they had the twisting. Um, yes, 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 yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, but again, like yeah, I really like creating structures for people to play inside. Absolutely, I think that yeah, I guess you're right. There's definitely a, an element of play within my work, um, and I think it's important even in our architecture is is to have that that joy, that playfulness for sure. 
And since you have your own company and you are an artist, I'm just curious, like, what is your style? If you were to differentiate yourself or say how different you are from, you know, another architect, what, what's different about you? Uh, well, in terms of like style, uh, design style, I don't, I don't like to work in my own design style, except for, of course, my own house. I don't, I don't think you should impose, I don't, I don't want to impose my design style on you. Uh, I think each individual is so vastly different and what they find interesting is so vastly different. Um, so people's design style is sort of like the paint that I'm using to create uh, the experience of their home. So I definitely don't work in a specific style. I've done heritage to modern to English cottage to Cape Cod. Uh, and so whatever is interesting to you, I, I, my work is much more about the experience and about creating connection in your home. And that's what I find fulfilling. Uh, I, do, I mean, I definitely do want to make it aesthetically pleasing, but I think going back to sort of the basics of that, uh, when you're looking at proportion, when you're looking at texture um, and things like that to to create something aesthetically pleasing, uh, I think is is definitely my style, I guess. I would, I would break it down to stylistic elements and definitely not like a... Uh, so you're not like a, like a, what's his name? Frank Gehry or I don't know how to pronounce his name, but you know how oh, yeah. every building is like the same almost? Yeah, no, I don't. I find, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely different type of architects that work in different styles for sure. And some of them have their signature style. Um, uh, when I went to, I did uh, one of my work terms in, in Denmark and I came across uh, Arnie Jakobsen and he's a, he's known for a lot of furniture design. He's an architect and he does a lot of, uh, a modern architecture as well. And he definitely wasn't an architect that I had really, beside his furniture, um, he does like the ant chair and the egg chair and stuff has become sort of very much emblematic of modern furniture. Uh, but uh, what I noticed going into all of his buildings was that they were in different styles. Um, so he has, you know, an English cottage. He has this very futuristic um gas station uh he <laughs> he works in all these different styles and you instead of seeing you know you look at something and you see it's frank gary because of the sculptural nature of it you look at an arnie jacobson work and you say okay wow that's all about connection to nature that's about materiality it's about proportion uh so you can you can see the architect within those styles which i found super fascinating and it really just completely changed how i thought what an architect should be um so anyway that's my <laughs> Yeah, that's really, that's actually really interesting. Really interesting. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left. I'm really curious about the personal side of this work, because we've talked a lot about the career, about materials and nature and all that. But I'm really curious, because when I interview scientists, we do the same thing. We talk about their science, their research, but who are they as a person? So first of all, all this work, is this, is this like ever consuming? Is this like an 80 hour work week? Or how do you, what's your work life balance like? Uh, well, it is no longer an 80 hour work week because, uh, we had our first child <laughs> and I've come to realize that I can't do 80 hour work weeks anymore. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I definitely, at one point it was me working my architecture job, me doing houses on the side, maybe doing public art projects, uh, planning a wedding, anyway, doing all the other stuff and yeah, working to 10 o'clock every, every night. Um, it's definitely changed now, now that we have a kid and I'm, definitely forced to have more work-life balance, uh, which is, it's important. It's def I definitely, I think, uh, rail against it because I'm always wanting to push myself and do more. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's, I think it's such a, 
both my art and my architecture is so much a part of who I am. If I'm not building something, if I'm not designing, if I'm not making something, it's just, I don't know, I get antsy. It's very unfulfilling. I definitely am a creator and a maker. And so it's, it's so much a part of my life. It's sometimes hard, I think, to, 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 to stop. Um, I definitely pull my partner into all of my work. He's, <laughs> this doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, so he's, it's, it's, it is a fairly consuming. I'm very lucky that my husband loves architecture and art. Um, but yeah, everything from yeah, a vacation is often filled with buildings. I'm not going to lie. A lot of buildings. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. My partner is equally. I mean, we haven't gone on a on a massive trip since. I mean, because of COVID, right? But yeah. uh, I think that's going to be one of the things that uh, we, we both learn about each other is how how we uh, how we deal with my interests. Uh, um, but what do you, as an artist, like? What because with artists especially with artists, things that we do outside of our work is what influences our actual work, right? So whether you listen to blues music or you hike a lot or whatever, do you do anything else outside of art that informs your art? Sorry, I'm going to be like my architecture. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad though. It's kind of true. So. It's not sad at all, but I was just curious because I wanted to know if you had any like hobbies outside of that like do you you know I mean obviously you don't garden because we we've determined that I tried gardening this year uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> something survived <laughs> okay well, what, about, what about things like music or books or uh, films or whatever is there anything else that informs your work it informs my work that's interesting I mean I definitely think I think being around creative people makes me want to be more creative. So I think music can definitely be something like that. Going to see different shows, um, all these things that we can't do now during the pandemic. But definitely I find that just being around creative people and art and yeah, music is so inspiring. And it makes me, even if I'm not taking like direct inspiration, they're, yeah, they're inspiring me to create. So I definitely get inspiration. Yeah, I guess that would be it. I would, I'm definitely interested in other artists and music and, and what seeing what other people are doing, just, just being interested in what they're, I'm so, you know what, actually, one thing I find super interesting is passionate people, people that are passionate, whether they're passionate about like Warhammer or like any sort of niche passion, I find fascinating. Um, and then again, again, as far as me to, to, yeah, keep, keep my own passion going. So Weird question. That, no, I mean that that makes a, a a ton of sense because I'm equally as, as an artist, uh, and obviously as a podcaster, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, totally um, interested and passionate about people's passions. Um, I interrupted you when you were talking because I was really curious to know what kind of music you listen to. I I don't I I, I yes. I listen, I'm not, as much as I like totally enjoy music and I like to go see live music, I don't have a library of people that I just automatically, uh, I feel like I'm lacking so much in that. Uh, when I was in my architecture degree, we were surrounded by so much music in Halifax. Like I didn't, it was like so effortless. So I don't have like a, I don't know, what do I listen to? Like weird random bands, like stereophonics or like... Okay. 
<laughs> random weird eclectic stuff <laughs> you listen to music when you work uh I actually listen to podcasts when I work interesting that's when I like binge podcasts I'm out in the garage I have yeah random podcasts uh I get a lot into the like uh criminal stuff Chris is a my partner is a forensic psychologist so I'm always <laughs> I was reading about weird murder or not listening to weird murderers and stuff on <laughs> which I never talked to him about so I don't <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, I really, I really want to like be a fly on the wall during your dinner conversations. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> no, he can't talk about work, so I just like, yeah. like, like, you're just like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what happened. And <laughs> uh, very cool. Uh, listen, Gem- uh, Jennifer, we're, we're pretty much out of time, so I just wanted to say a huge thank you for sharing your passion. With, with me and with our listeners. Uh, it's been a, it's been a real joy getting to know you. Yeah, it's been, it's been really nice, actually. Uh, I feel like I've been an introvert and not talked to people for 10 months. So it's really nice to talk to someone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, we we're going to put a link to uh, your website and your, your firm's website and all that information. So uh, uh, again, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries. Uh, it was such a pleasure. And if you need help designing the concrete structure to carry your uh, tardigrades, yes, me up. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Jennifer. All right. Thanks, Julie. Really.